also welcome everyone and congratulations. Um, it's our first day of practice. And um, yeah, I think we know at times it's not as so easy to sit with ourselves. And so, um, yeah, a moment of just acknowledging this time that um, we're giving ourselves to practice. And as I said, uh, at times it may not be uh, a feeling of it not being so easy. And there's a very humorous um, quote from a Selenese monk, uh, Bhante Gunaratana. I trust many of you know of him. He wrote a, a number of books and really a classic um, mindfulness in plain English and others. And this comes from inside his book. He says, somewhere in this process of meditation, you will come face to face with the sudden realization that you are completely crazy and that your mind is a shrieking madhouse on wheels, barreling down the hill, utterly out of control and hopeless. No problem, he says. You're not any crazier than you were yesterday. It's always been this way, but perhaps you just didn't notice. Not a problem. You're not any crazier than you were yesterday. So I love that. That's very much kind of normalizing the practice. And I'm also um, I'm a lover of Hafiz, who's a, a Persian poet. And um, he, he asks us not to be fooled. And this is about sitting in your closet for three days. So he's doing his own self-retreat in a closet. He says, not many teachers in this world can give you as much enlightenment in one year as sitting all alone for three days in, in your closet. That would really do it. And that means not leaving. And you may get a friend to help you with a few sandwiches and you better get yourself a chamber pot. No reading, uh-uh. No writing either. That would be cheating. Let's aim for the high 360-degree detox though the sitting alone is not recommended if you're normally sedated. But dear one, don't let Hafiz fool you. There is a ruby buried inside here. Don't let Hafiz fool you. There's a ruby buried inside here. So I love this uh, teaching that uh, within us there is wisdom. So today, um, I just happened to see the date. It's November 14th, 2016, but today's the anniversary of my grandmother, Nettie, who I just loved so much. And she challenged my belief because it's a belief that, you know, everyone thinks, um, you know, you're going to die, but um, she lived to 103. She eventually did die. But we weren't so sure. <laughs> she hummed along and had a well, yeah, a full life at 103, and she had a lot of loss, the loss of a son and two husbands, and going through the war. She came over on a boat from Russia when she was a kid. But she was the embodiment of... Um, 
I understand Gil sometimes translates metta, loving kindness, as grandmotherly love, and I certainly was very lucky to have this type of grandmotherly love, and I also know sometimes some grandmothers it wasn't grandmotherly love, so I don't want to give a blanket statement to that. But my grandmother personally uh, taught me so much about life. And so, yeah, so I just want to bring her into the room, Grandma Nettie. And I think I'll maybe offer um, a reading. And um, this supposedly was written by a New York City taxi cab driver. I'm not sure how true this all is, but the story itself is... Um, very powerful, and I sometimes cry when I read this story, so you'll bear with me. So it's from a New York City taxi driver, and he wrote that, um, that I arrived at the address and I honked my horn. And after waiting a few minutes, I honked again. This was going to be my last ride of the shift, and I thought about driving away, but instead I put the car in park, and I walked up to the door, and I knocked and I heard, just a minute, sounded like a frail and elderly voice, and I could hear something being dragged across the floor. And after a long pause, the door opened, and a small woman in her 90s stood before me, and she was wearing a print dress and a pillbox hat with a veil pinned on it, somebody like out of a 1940s movie. And by her side was a small nylon suitcase, the apartment looked as if no one had lived in it for many years. All the furniture was covered now with sheets. There were no clocks on the walls, no knickknacks or utensils on the counters. Would you carry my bag out to the car, she asked. I took the suitcase to the cab and then returned to assist the woman. And she took my arm and we walked slowly toward the curb. She kept thanking me for my kindness. It's nothing, I told her. I try to treat my passengers like the way I would want my mother to be treated. Oh, you're such a good boy, she said. And when we got in the cab, she gave me an address and then asked, could you drive through downtown? It's not the shortest way, I answered. Oh, I don't mind, she said. I'm in no hurry. I'm on my way to a hospice. I looked in the rearview mirror, and her eyes were glistening. I don't have any family left, she continued in a soft voice, and the doctor says I don't have very long. I quietly reached over, and I shut off my meter. What route would you like me to take, I asked. And for the next two hours, we drove through the city. She showed me the building where she had once worked as an elevator operator. And we drove through the neighborhood where she and her husband had lived when they were newlyweds. And she pulled up to the front of a furniture warehouse where she had once been a ball, which, which had once been a ballroom where she had gone dancing as a girl. So sometimes she'd ask me to slow down in front of a particular building or corner and would sit staring into the darkness saying nothing. As the first hint of sun was creasing the horizon, she suddenly said, I'm tired, let's go now. And we drove in silence to the address she had given me. 
As we pulled in, a couple of orderlies came out. They put her in a wheelchair and rolled her into, um, began to roll her into the building. But she said, how much do I owe you? As she was reaching into her purse. Nothing, I said. You have to make a living, she answered. There are other passengers, I responded. And almost without thinking, I bent and I gave her a big hug. And she held on to me tightly. You just gave an old woman a little moment of joy, she said. Thank you. I squeezed her hand and I walked into the dim morning light. Behind me, a door shut. It was like the sound of the closing of a life. I didn't pick up any more passengers that shift. I just drove aimlessly lost in thought. And for the rest of the day, I could hardly talk. What if that woman had got an angry driver, or one who was impatient? What if I had refused, honked once, and then drove away? And you know, on quick review, I don't think I've done anything more important in my life. I love the story. It touches me speaking about this fragility and and the preciousness of life. Also kind of reminds me of my grandma. Today I want to talk to us about what brings us to practice. And I trust, uh, of course, you're here for this retreat and there's reasons that have brought you here. I want to explore this. In the teachings of the Dharma of Buddhism, there's the story of how Siddhartha Gautama, who was the, um, a prince who later left the palace and became known as the Buddha, and his story of how he left the palace has always spoken to me so deeply. Said that at the age of 29, he, um, you know, he was destined to become a great king. He had um, all the education and the arts and the trainings, um, a very privileged life. And, and uh, his father was very happy. He was destined to become a great king. And at the age of 29, for whatever reason, he decided to go out beyond the palace gate into the, the kingdom. And um, while he was out, he came across a very old person. And he asked his uh, charioteersman, Chana, What's this? And China said, this is an old person. And Siddhartha didn't quite understand. He lived a very sheltered life. Also, actually, to go back a little bit, his father had been warned by some holy person when Siddhartha was just even a little baby. At that time, it was very customary for a few holy people to come and to look at the size of the feet, the ears, the feeling, and give predictions. And three or four of them said, he'll become a great king. But one of them, the youngest, Kodanya, said, no, he's going to become a Buddha. 
And the king didn't like the sound of that and decided to want to protect him. So he was lived a very sheltered life, had a palace for the fall, a palace for the winter, a palace for the spring, a palace for the summer. And so there he was on this first outing outside of the palace as if his eyes opened up perhaps for the first time into really, wow, this is an old person. Yes, Chana, who is this? And this is, this is an old person. If you live long enough, you will, you will age. No one can escape from aging. This kind of shook him up. Said on another time, he went for another outing and came across someone very, very, very sick. And um, it was on the side of the road, and, and this person was, the color was different, and there was diarrhea, and so forth. And um, so, so that's what, what happened here, because this person is very, very ill, and you know, everyone will get ill sooner than later, sooner or later. And this, too, really shook him up. Said on a third outing, he came across, he went out again into the kingdom and came across a corpse, a dead body, lifeless, cold, discolored. And asked Chana about this, and Chana said, this is a dead person, and at some point uh, everyone will die. No one can escape from death. So these were three very powerful meetings that Siddhartha had that shook him to his core. And sometimes we might think, oh, this is just a story. I mean, you know, by age 29, you would, you know, know these things. But often the case, um, we can live a very sheltered life and a naive life. Perhaps that's why there's a Hindu proverb that says that everyone thinks everyone else is going to die, but not me. But then all of a sudden, as if our eyes open, waking from a dream, we begin to see some of the realities of aging, illness, and death. And in the Dharma, these are called the heavenly messengers, which is an unusual term because that doesn't sound like very good news, aging, illness, and death. But they're heavenly and considered heavenly messengers because they awaken us from the dream. They awaken us to the realities of life. Jane Kenyon, she writes in her poem, Otherwise, that I got out of bed on two strong legs, it might have been otherwise. And I ate cereal, sweet milk, and a ripe, flawless peach. It might have been otherwise. I took the dog uphill to the birch wood, and all morning I did the work that I love, and at noon I lied down with my mate. It might have been otherwise. And we ate dinner together at a table with silver candlesticks. It might have been otherwise. And I slept in a bed in a room with paintings on the walls, and I planned another day, just like this day, but one day I know. One day I know it will be otherwise. One day I know it will be otherwise. When Siddhartha recognized this truth of one day it will be otherwise, this uh, caused a lot of anguish. 
said that he had another encounter after these first three waking up to the realities of aging, illness, and death, where he came across um, a person that had a completely different type of feel. Uh, looked different. The person walked with a sense of some peace. Um, this was a wayfarer. This was a monk. A holy person dedicating their life for truth. And when Siddhartha saw this person, felt this person's presence was very different. He asked Chana, who, who is this? And then Chana said, this is a, a holy ascetic and a person dedicating their life to understanding the meaning of life. When Siddhartha heard this, there was a glimmer of, this is what I need to do. This is the only thing that makes sense. If it all is not going to last, even though I know I'm going to have this palace and whatever, I want to figure out what is this life about. In Pali, the language of the Buddha, there's a, a, a word, a term. Sometimes it's these Pali words, it's just one word, but it packs a punch. There's a lot to it. And so there's the word called samvega, which means that when you have the awareness that death can come at any moment, it catapults you into a sense of spiritual urgency. What is this life? So you could say that uh, Siddhartha had some way consciousness big time. And um, so he, he came back to the palace and um, he decided he was going to leave. His father heard about it and came to him and begged him, please don't go, Siddhartha, please don't go. And Siddhartha paused and said, All right, Dad, if you can grant me three wishes, I will stay. And so that, that got Dad pretty hopeful because he was kind of like the richest guy around and could do, you know, with money, anything, and said, Sure, what do you want? And so Siddhartha said, Prevent me from getting sick, prevent me from aging, prevent me from dying. And poor Dad couldn't couldn't give him that. But he still urged him on and begged him, please. I said, Siddhartha said, okay, two wishes. Prevent me from getting sick and prevent me from dying. And the king just felt defeated. But still urged him on and finally Siddhartha said, okay, one wish. The king felt a little hopeful. Siddhartha said, prevent me from dying. And the king knew that um, there was nothing that he could do to keep his son. And that night later, he gave away his princely garments and shaved his head on the same evening that his wife, Yasodhara, was giving birth. He knew that, uh, of course, that she and uh, his son, Rahula, were, were going to be well taken care of with all of the support that they had at the palace. And so he left the kingdom, and just to let you know, he wasn't, so bad, he actually came back a number of years later and taught them what he had learned, and they all got enlightened and they all lived happily ever after. <laughs> he taught them the Dharma, but I, so I, I always like to add that piece that he did come back because some of us think, What the he's left his wife and his kid, but he knew they were going to be well taken care of, and he came back 
and he gave them the inheritance, the noble inheritance of the Dharma, and they also awakened. So um, I'd like to just definitely let you know about that. So the fourth heavenly messenger plays a very important role. A little anecdotal story, Achan Sumedo, that a number of you know, he's an American that became a Thai forest monk under Achan Cha, one of the first Western uh, students. And um, at some point, Achan Sumedo moved to, to the UK, and Achan Cha said, whatever you do, do not abandon going out for alms rounds. But no one will serve me food, and I know that the Thai people in the community, they'll, they'll take care of me. But Achan Sa said, no, you're the fourth heavenly messenger. You have to walk and go for alms. And it's so interesting because there's a story that um, he was going through um, a park one day, and a jogger went by him. He was just walking along with his alms bowl, and the jogger went by, and then all of a sudden the jogger came back and said, What are you doing? <laughs> who are you? <laughs> and um, Anachan Sumedho said who he was, and he was a Buddhist monk, and he's doing alms round, and he's here to help hopefully start a monastery. And so they got acquainted, and it um, turns out that that jogger owned a, a giant old abandoned mansion in Chithurst, and said, I'm going to offer that to you. And that's where um, they got offered that monastery, and they have a very thriving uh, monastic community. Never underestimate the powers of the fourth heavenly messenger. And it's actually the messenger of hope that there is a way. And I sincerely believe that you have met already the fourth heavenly messenger and the three prior, because you c I don't think you could be here if that wasn't the case. You know? All of us here have been touched one way or another with these realities of aging and illness and death. And maybe we heard about mindfulness, or we heard about Buddhism, we heard, heard something about this something. Or maybe we met somebody that we knew, like, there's something about them that maybe there's another way. I trust that we've all met these messengers. Maybe take a moment and reflect the messengers that have touched you in your life. Someone old or aging, those that you've known that have been ill, that have died. And perhaps early on, this person or teaching that somehow opened that maybe there's another way. I'll share a little bit personally about some of my messengers. I remember so vividly 
the moment that I realized that I was going to die and that death could happen at any moment, not only to myself, but to everyone. I was four years old and I was riding down Quarry Hill Road in Brighton, Massachusetts to go visit my Nana. So I had a grandma and a Nana. <laughs> and I, I don't quite know why that awareness arose. I don't know if my parents were talking about someone that died or, or whatever. I have no idea, but all of a sudden I just became aware sitting in that back seat alone that this was not going to last. And I said to my parents um, this realization that I had, and I remember my mother and my dad too um, very kindly uh, saying to me in a very loving way, don't worry, Bobby. It was called Bobby in those days. Don't worry, Bobby. It won't happen for a long, long, long time. Well, I knew that they were actually trying to be nice to me and to comfort me, but I actually knew at four years old that they were not telling me the truth because I knew that it could happen at any moment. There was no guarantee that there was going to be a long, 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 long time. And what is a long time? I remember asking my teacher, Evelyn Ditsero, when he was 80 years old on his birthday, how long is, how, how's 80 years, how how's that feel to have been alive 80 years? And he went like this. <laughs> it's that quick. I'm now 63. That's, well, how did that happen? Yeah, Actually, 62, almost 63. <laughs> 63 and three quarters. 62 and three quarters. <laughs> but I remember that moment and actually, a few years ago, I was driving in the Boston area, seeing now my elderly parents, and I decided to take a turn and go down Quarry Hill Road. And it was about um, it was about 55 years earlier that I was driving on that same road in the back seat of my parents' car, and uh, it was a powerful return to drive down that road like that's when my path started in some ways that 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 road i don't know and so i had that realization at four years old and by the time that i was nine years old that realization really compounded itself into reality and in that i had a younger brother buddy who died. We shared the same room together. He had a genetic illness called Tay-Sachs. And my best friend, Ellen Chabot, who I played every day with after school, died one day in the middle of the night of a diabetic coma. And then my grandfather, who lived downstairs, he died of, of a heart attack. And so I knew, so growing up, there was a lot of early death in my life of, of significant people. This left me um, very dazed and confused. This coincided with the Beatles growing their hair long and the Vietnam War and the times were a-changing. And so I had a you know, fairly challenging time growing up. And when I look back on it, well, of course, I was dealing with a lot of grief. 
in trying to understand what is this life. Yeah, I, I was uh, brought up as a Jew, and in Hebrew school, many of the Hebrew school teachers were concentration camp survivors because they couldn't get work anywhere else. They all had PTSD. And so the type of education I had was, was one of a lot of fear and pain. So years went by and just a sense of confusion, and eventually... Um, after graduating high school, barely, because I wasn't too interested in school, but then my fr it was either going into the army, but fortunately I had a high draft number, but still not knowing what to do, and some friends went on to college, and I figured, well, maybe I should try that. I had to take another year of extended high school for another year, and I was very lucky <laughs> to get accepted um, to a very small uh, liberal arts college in the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont. And um, it's a very special place, the Northeast Kingdom, Caledonia County. And I was very happy to get in, and I, I had three majors, getting drunk, getting stoned on marijuana, and trying to have girlfriends. And I was not very successful in the last department, but very good on the first two. And I flunked out of school um, in my second year. And my mother begged me, Bobby, isn't there something that would interest you? And um, I looked in the course catalog, and I, I know I didn't want any more reading, writing, arithmetic, history, science. They weren't speaking to me, and I happened, something caught my eye about the wisdom of the East. I didn't know anything about the wisdom of the East, but I knew something that East had to do with something in Asia. And I had some really good connotations with Asia. This is going to sound, it's, I'm, it's not meant to be funny, this is really true. But growing up, I absolutely loved Chinese food and going to Chinese restaurants. And the images of the Buddhas and the dragons, the smells, the tastes, even the vibes of the waiters and waitresses was very different than Howard Johnson's, which is kind of like Denny's. So there was this connotation of... Something was there. I really didn't know, but that's what really... Okay, I'm going to take this class because there's something about the mystique of the Buddha and the laughing Buddha and the dragons. and What's this about? And so I, I never did anything like this ever before, and I went to my first class, and sitting on top of the desk in a full lotus position was my professor, Bill Jackson. I had never had a professor like this ever before in my entire life. And, um, you know, most of my friends sit behind the desk and they're uptight, but he's sitting on top of the desk in a full lotus position and he began to speak. And somehow the way that he spoke, the way that he was embodied, I, I, began, I realized this guy, he's different than other professors I've had. And as he continued to teach and invite us, 
I, I began to sense, like, you know, this guy knows something, and I want to know what he knows. He's really probably my very first heavenly messenger. I always am so grateful for Bill Jackson. I actually looked him up on Facebook and found him. <laughs> Turned out he actually, after teaching there, he went to Harvard, he got his PhD in world religions, he was taught in the University of Indiana and retired in the world religion department. And, but I was able to thank him. I don't know if he knew how much his being touched me and changed my life. He was one of the, he was like, he like really walked and lived his talk. He was not just in his head, but in his heart, with his head. And the very first book he wanted us to read and to reflect upon was the Tao Te Ching by Lao Tzu. The Way of Life, the book of the Tao. And I couldn't believe when I started reading about the Tao Te Ching, uh, these simple and yet very profound wisdoms that opened my heart like a floodgate. Particularly, um, there's one particular poem or epigram, number 47. It's a translation by Witter Binner, which is one of my favorite translations. And he says, there's no need to run outside for better seeing nor to peer from a window. Rather abide at the center of your being, for the more you leave it, the less you learn. Search your heart and see. He who is wise, who takes each turn, the way to do is to be. So what this is speaking to me is that there's no need to look outside your window for everything you need to know is inside. And I had never in my entire life up to that point, ever thought of that, this looking inside. That's how lost I was. And so at least I became aware of how lost I was. But then this was pointing, if you want to know something, begin to look in here. So I sometimes someone had asked Achanchada, again, that wonderful Thai forest master, like, where can I learn the Dharma? What books should I read? And Achanchada said, he just pointed here. There's the Dharma. So that was really a turning point in my life of um, coming on to, to meditation practice. And from there, um, I just got more and more deeply involved in the Dharma and ended up moving to San Francisco and meeting my very first formal Vipassana teacher, who I have such deep gratitude for, Dr. Rina Sirkar. And she eventually invited me to come to Burma to meet her teacher, Tangpulu Sero. And there I actually had the opportunity to ordain temporarily as a monk in his forest monasteries. And yeah. It was there in the monasteries that I began to uh, really begin to investigate more about the mindfulness of death, the mindfulness of life. We would go to the cemeteries in the middle of the night and meditate on um, the fragility and the preciousness of this life. And 
these practices were supporting me to begin to open into my fears, into my pain, to begin to learn. Jana Falls, she writes in a poem called The Whole Array, that this life isn't about slicing off this life isn't about slicing off the parts that I don't like to be left with those that I do. I choose the whole array. Night and day, ease in its opposite, the squeaky wheel and the grease gun. Push away any piece of life, and a key that could have opened the door is lost tossed out with the trash. I pray for the courage to receive the full catastrophe, however it appears to me, without needing to push back. I choose the whole array. So working with these practices is, is, um, was actually so wonderful to, to be in the monastery and, and to, you know, people were talking about death and life and aging and illness and awakening, which became the, and still is the most important part of my life. And so it said that the Buddha left the palace and began learning from teachers and he was a great student, Siddhartha Gautama, I should say, and uh, he mastered many of the meditative practices of the day with different teachers, so much so that teachers would say to him, all right, you can sit next to me now, and you know everything that I know. And, and Siddhartha was a master of absorptions and developing one-pointedness of mind and heart. Tremendous experiences of serenity, tranquility, one-pointedness, unification. But after some time with these practices, realized uh, that it still didn't give him the answers. And so then it was believed at that time that self-mortification was the way to awakening and punishing the body. It is said that he reduced his food to one grain of rice a day until he experienced uh, near collapse. said when you touched the belly, you could feel the tailbone, not a good sign, and realized the futility of punishing the body and left this group of ascetics. Restored his health with the beautiful support of a woman named Sujata and found a beautiful tree and sat underneath the tree and took a resolve that there's no other teacher to go see or teaching to learn, that I've learned so much from so many things and it's time just to sit underneath this tree and this resolve, I'm going to stay here. I'll stay here. It took a profound resolve to stay and to reflect deeply to understand this life. And it's said that while he was sitting there that, um, and again, maybe so hard to know what's real, <laughs> but I love the story of, of this, and it makes some sense to me. But it's said that he recalled another time when he was a young boy sitting at another tree, and it was a beautiful day. 
and perhaps just reflecting on just the beauty of the day and beauty of life. And then on a field nearby, there was a, some farmers and ox and a plow, and they were beginning to break into the soil, to turn over the soil, to do planting, and perhaps because the sensitivity was heightened. As the plow blade, as he gazed over, began to sink into the earth, he could almost sense and feel the cries of the worms. And, and was just touched with this juxtaposition of the beauty and the sacredness of life and its fragility and its pain. It's all here. And so, again, at the time, Siddhartha Gautama was a master of concentrated absorption practices, and something happened underneath that tree. Perhaps it was a change of the focus from one-pointedness and unification to using that concentrated awareness to beginning to recognize the impermanent and changing nature of things, the shifting, the coming, the going, the breath, the sensations, states of mind, so forth. So perhaps there was something, rather than choosing that point of unification, the attention shifted to perhaps impermanence. And this gave a series of very deep realizations about life that is known as the Four Noble Truths, or perhaps I like it just to say these powerful four realizations into suffering and its causes and a path leading to its ending. So there's a lot more to um, these teachings that will gradually become unpacked here in the retreat. And for now, maybe we'll just pause and take a few breaths in and breaths out. And in a little bit, we'll be going into walking meditation, and I would love for you, as an offering, if you like, to reflect upon the heavenly messengers that have touched you in your life. Maybe it was a friend, or associate, or a schoolmate, or those that, or a family member that have touched you with aging, or illness, or death. But also that fourth messenger of brought you onto the path. The Buddha's quest was to understand 
what is this life and to experience deep freedom. And this is the timeless perennial messages of all of the Buddhas that uh, we can awaken within us. Growing in deep wisdom and deep compassion. So this is from uh, Tsongkhapa. Since the human body at peace with itself is more precious than the rarest of gems. Cherish your body. It is yours this one time only. The human form is one with difficulty and it is easy to lose. All worldly things are brief like lightning in the sky. This life you must know as the tiny splash of a raindrop, a thing of beauty that disappears even as it comes into being. The human body at peace with itself is more precious than the rarest of gems. As I feel moved to offer one more as we take our leap. From Patrick Overton, it says, When I come to the edge of all the light that I know, and I step off into the darkness of the unknown, I will trust one of two things to happen. That I will find something to stand on, or I will be taught to fly. When I come to the edge of all the light that I know and I step off into the darkness of the unknown, I will trust one of two things to happen. That I'll find something to stand on or I will be taught to fly. So may all beings be at peace.